Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can turn to John's Gospel. We'll be looking at chapter 13. John's Gospel, chapter 13. If you do not have a Bible, you're here this morning and you'd like to have one so that you can follow along. The gentlemen in the aisles have some that they will be glad to hand out to you. You'll also find that that Bible is marked in the scripture passage that we will uh, be looking at this morning. John chapter 13 is where we're going to spend our time. I'm going to uh, start in another verse, but don't worry. We'll make our way to John chapter 13 in just a few moments. I don't know uh, if any of you ever heard of or read the book Three Cups of Tea. It's a book that came out about five years ago. It's actually spent uh, about four years on the New York Times bestseller list. So it's a book that's done very well. It's authored by a fellow by the name of Greg Mortensen. And Greg Mortensen uh, wrote this book uh, to describe some adventures that he had uh, mountain climbing. He decided that he was going to uh, climb K2, which is the second largest, tallest mountain in the world, in honor of his sister, who had passed away from an epileptic seizure. And he recounts in this book about how he doesn't quite make it to the top. He's not able to reach the summit of K2. And on his way down, somehow, don't know how, he gets separated from the climbing party that he's climbing with. And he's wandering now. He's without food. He's without water. His, his clothes are torn and ragged. And he stumbles into this little village called Corfe. And while he's in Corfe, which is a small village in Pakistan, while he's there, uh, the people there nurse him back to health. They provide food for him. They give him water. Uh, They give him clothing. They give him a place to rest and sleep and rest up. And basically nurse him back to health and in some ways save his life before he's finally able to return to civilization. (laughs) While he's in Corfe, he's wandering around the village. And as he's wandering around the village, he sees a group of children near the back of the village, and they're scrawling in the dust with sticks. He's wondering, what are these children doing? Why why are they doing this? And he asks someone and finds out that these children are scrawling in the dust with sticks because this is their school, and this is how they do their lessons. And as he's observing what they're doing, one of the little girls comes up to him, and asks him if, if he would help build a school in their village, if he would come back to Corfe and build them a school. And Mortensen says that in that moment, he made a rash decision that changed the course of his life forever. And so when he finally came back to the States, he wrote this book, Three Cups of Tea, which has now sold over four million copies. He founded a humanitarian organization called the Central Asia Institute, The Central Asia Institute advocates for education, particularly for girls in in developing nations like Pakistan and Afghanistan. He's built scores of schools and and has just become uh, a leading leading humanitarian. In fact, uh, the Central Asia Institute, since he founded it, has taken in uh, over $60 million dollars for building schools for these children. And people no less esteemed than our president have contributed uh, to the Central Asia Institute's humanitarian efforts. There's just one small problem with all of this. 
most of what Mortensen said is likely not true. Most of the things that he wrote about his experiences in the book Three Cups of Tea are, are either grossly exaggerated or completely fabricated. The people that climbed with Mortensen to the top of K2 say that he never was separated, that they never did stumble into a village called Corfe, that he actually did not even hear about Corfe until a year after his failed attempt to climb K2. Now, none of this takes away from the things that he has done. I mean, he is recognized as the leading voice advocating for education in some of these developing nations. But as more and more is uncovered about what he claims to have done, Mortensen as an individual has become more and more and more discredited. His work devalued and denigrated. All those accomplishments, which are real and genuine, just don't seem like as much, and he's having more and more trouble raising money for the Central Asia, Central Asia Institute because humanitarian watchdog groups are now becoming aware of this and are not able to fully recommend that organization. Now, the idea that one thing could discredit a whole load of other accomplishments reminds me of a parallel situation in the New Testament. Let me read to you some words from 1 Corinthians 13. I told you I'd start here and then I'd make my way to you in John 13. So you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 3, listen to these words. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. You see, with the, in Mortensen's case, we have the story of a philanthropist who lacks the truth. And in what I've just read, we have a story of a Christian who lacks love. And in both instances, that one thing that's lacking completely discredits the entire endeavor. Verses like these, when I read them, scare me because they present a picture of the possibility of a, of a flurry of Christian activity that completely misses the point. The Bible tells us that love is, is absolutely foundational to our Christian lives, the way that we live our lives, the way that we obey, the way that we follow Jesus. Love is absolutely foundational to that, and it is possible to be people who spend years doing all sorts of good stuff and completely miss the point. Because the stuff that we do isn't infused and layered and covered and motivated by love. 
I don't think Paul, the man who wrote those words that I read to you in 1 Corinthians, is, is exaggerating. We might think that he is. I mean, really? <laughs> I do all this stuff and yet it counts for nothing? I don't think he's exaggerating. I think he's actually caught the flavor of what Jesus says to us in the passage that we're looking at this, this morning in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Those are the two verses that I'm going to read in just a few moments. But Jesus is sitting with his disciples and he's having a meal with them. And he's going to the cross in a few days and he's trying to explain to them that he's only going to be with them a little while longer. And he's telling them that where he's going, at this point, they're not yet able to follow. And Jesus wants it to make it clear to them how they're to conduct themselves in his absence. And that way of conduct can be summarized with one word. Love. Let's read verses 34 and 35 of John chapter 13. Jesus says this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. One of the things that's at the forefront of Jesus' mind it, before he leaves is how his disciples are going to conduct themselves in his absence. And Jesus is trying to tell him that though they will not be able to follow him to a particular destination at the moment, it does not mean that they cannot follow him. They may not be able to go to the place, but they can follow in his footsteps. They can follow the way of love. Jesus wants them to realize that love encapsulates It is the foundation of, the summation of, their Christian responsibility. It is what will define them as followers of Jesus. And so I want us to take just a few minutes this morning to think through what Jesus says in these two verses about love. You'll see your outline that's been included in your program. Number one, the mark of a Christian is love. The mark of a Christian is love. There are all sorts of religious symbols that mark devotees of a particular religion. Okay, if you think about world religions or you think about religion in our country, there are all sorts of ways that you can look at someone and immediately identify their faith. If you see people walking around with shaved heads and orange robes, they're likely Buddhist monks. If you see a woman with a scarf wrapped around her head and possibly even covering her face. That identifies her as a follower of Islam. If you see a, pers- a man with a small hat on the back of his head, he's Jewish. If you see uh, a, a, a man with a, with a white collar, he's likely Catholic. Or a nun wearing the habit all of these things are religious identifiers that show, that show a person just by looking that these are, people are followers of that faith. And I find it interesting that when Jesus talks to his disciples, he doesn't give them something outward by, by which people will immediately know, oh, they're disciples of Jesus because they're wearing that. He doesn't give them jerseys. He doesn't give them what would Jesus do bracelets even. He doesn't give them anything that would outwardly identify them as followers of himself. And so Christians in any culture around the world often look just the same as the culture that they come from in many ways. And Jesus is telling them, I don't want a symbol to define you. 
I want a way of life to define you. And the way of life that needs to define you is love. People are going to know that you are really following me by the fierce love that you have for one another, not the hat or shirt or bracelet or anything else that you wear. You're going to be defined by your love. The mark of a Christian is love. I've taken that point from a little booklet written by Francis Schaeffer. He wrote a, he wrote a book called uh, The Mark of a Christian. And in this little booklet, he talks about, some of these very thi- talks about some of these very things. And one of the things that absolutely dismayed Schaefer as he looked out on his church landscape of his day, he was in the Presbyterian denomination. There were all sorts of shifts and changes and rifts. People were lining up on both sides. And, and even the people with whom Schaefer agreed, in Schaefer's estimation, showed an astonishing lack of love for one another. So much so that it actually shook Schaefer's faith and whether the Christian faith could really be true. Because if it's really true, is it possible for us to act like this? Is it possible for us to show one another such little love? And so he writes this pamphlet encouraging everyone that the the distinguishing mark of a Christian is going to be the way that we love one another. And so I want you to think back to the last week or even this morning, or last month, or last years of your life. Could it be that you, could it be that I, have been engaged in all sorts of good things that amount to harsh, abrasive noise? Jesus says, the mark of a Christian is love. Now, who are we to love? Well, Jesus tells us that we are to love one another. What Jesus is talking about in this passage is the family love that should characterize Jesus' followers. I don't believe he means that to the exclusion of the world around us. The Bible tells us in several several places and in several occasions that we're to love all people. In fact, Jesus has asked that question. What, What are the greatest commandments? And his answer is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and soul and mind, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I could note other things, but it says elsewhere. I'll just read one other reference from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 12. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. So the Bible makes it clear that we're supposed to have a love for one another. But I think what Jesus is talking about specifically in this passage is is the love that we're to have in the family. Do you realize that all of us, apart from Christ, are orphans? All Christians are former orphans who have been adopted into the family of God so that we can call God Father and Jesus Brother. And Jesus says, now that you are in this new family dynamic, love like family. Love each other like family. Demonstrate. Demonstrate that you are family. Love is, love's imprint is all over the New Testament. In some of the greetings to the letters that we, we've that we, that we have recorded for us in the New Testament, love is shown as one of the key outworkings of, of God's grace in their lives. The people to whom Paul is often writing points to the love that they have for one another as a result of something that's been changed inside of them. 
our responsibility to love is mentioned in almost every single book of the New Testament. And I don't have time to list all of these things to you, but Romans chapter 12 and verse 10 says that we should be devoted to one another in love. Galatians chapter 5 and thir- verse 13 says that we should serve one another in love. Colossians 3, 12 to 14 says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all in perfect unity. I hope you can see, just from the things that we've talked about in these few short minutes, that love's kind of a big deal in the Bible. And so I've got to ask you the question, and I've got to ask myself the question, is it a big deal to you? Is love the character quality that defines you? What would your wife, or your husband, or your friends or the people around us say, would they say that they definitely know you're a disciple of Jesus because it's unmistakable, the quality of your love? God isn't happy with mere raw obedience. He's concerned with, with what motivates it. He's concerned with what accompanies it. And love is not a footnote, an appendix, or a sidebar to the Christian life. It is the summation of our responsibility to one another. Jesus doesn't just tell his disciples, though, that their lives are to be characterized by love. He tells them how to do it. And so secondly, I say this. The standard of love is Jesus. The standard of love is Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples that he's giving them a new commandment. And we might ask, is this the first time that we've ever been commanded to love one another? And of course, the answer is no. One verse that I've already read, it says that we're to love the Lord with all of our being and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And when Jesus says that, that latter part, that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, he's quoting the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.18, in which the Bible says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So Jesus is not saying that the commandment, the commandment itself to love is new. But what Jesus is constantly doing as we, see, as we read through the New Testament, what Jesus is constantly doing is he's taking our ideas of what it means to be righteous and qualities of righteousness, and he's raising the bar higher and higher and higher. And he's taking our standards of what we think it means to be righteous, and he's completely blowing them out of the water. Jesus, is, Jesus there, there are recorded conversations to us of people that ask him questions. And one young ruler comes to him and says, I've kept the law from my youth. What else do I need to do? Am I set? And Jesus says, no, one more thing. Sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. You don't know what righteousness is. He says to others, unless your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees, the most righteous group of the, of the day, you won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Because people looked at the Pharisees as the benchmark. Surely they will get it. And Jesus says, you haven't even seen righteousness yet. He tells, people, he tells people that think that they've never cheated 
on their wife. If you even looked at a woman and lusted after her in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. He tells people that, that say, hey, I've never killed anyone. If you've ever hated anyone in your heart, you're guilty of murder. You see what Jesus is doing over and over again? He's taking our flimsy standards of righteousness where we think we're doing a good job and he's blowing them away. He's raising the bar. He's saying the standard is up here. And it's in this way that Jesus can... can can take the commandment to love and say it's an entirely new commandment. He's basically telling his disciples, you haven't even seen love yet. You haven't even begun to, to, to understand what love is until you watch me do it. In that way, this is a whole new kind of love. The standard of love is like Jesus. And so, yes, we are able to see people around us, friends and neighbors who don't know the Lord, we are able to see them do acts of love. And at times, at times, and perhaps I might even say often, they put us to shame. And yet, they're nothing close to the new commandment of love that Jesus gives us. The standard of love is Jesus. Jesus says that that we are supposed to love as he loves. Now, this is a, a sermon series in and of itself. And so we won't try to, to, to explore all of, all of it. But let me just point out a few ways, actually four ways, in which we can see how Jesus loves. And I'll try to limit myself mostly to this passage of Scripture that we're looking at in John chapter 13. At the beginning of John chapter 13, uh, as I've said, we see Jesus celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And how does he spend these last few days of life? with his disciples, not just eating with them, but as they come in and they're seated around the table, what does Jesus do? He picks up a basin. He picks up a towel. He gets on his hands and his knees and one by one goes down the row washing feet. If you're going to love like Jesus, it's going to involve humble service. This is the creator of the universe stooping to serve his creation in a way that we would think as demeaning. And in fact, the disciples didn't want him to do it. Jesus, this is below you. And yet Jesus does it. And not only does he do it for them, but he tells them, if you want to be like me, if you want to follow me, you have to do the same. He says, in verse, he says that in verse 15. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. you see, if we're going to love like Jesus, it's going to involve being humble. It's going to involve a humbling of our hearts and picking up a towel and serving one another. And one of the reasons that we can't love and we don't love the way we should it's because we don't have the humility. We're not really characterized by the humble love of Jesus. So Jesus' love humbly serves. Secondly, it risks betrayal. It's at this meal that one of the men who has been with Jesus all of this time, who has been sharing the food with Jesus, is going to quietly excuse himself and turn Jesus in for a little bit of money. Jesus' love risks betrayal. You see, what we often do is a cost-benefit analysis when it comes to who we love. 
Is it going to benefit me? What are the pros and cons? Let me line it up on a, let me line it up on a spreadsheet and see if I'm going to come out in the black. And if I'm not, I'm not touching it. But if you love like Jesus is going to love, you're going to get burned. And a lot of times we don't love because we can't let that happen. I can't get burned. It's not worth it. Have you ever thought that or said it? It's just not worth it. And yet Jesus loves in a way that risks betrayal. He doesn't do the cost-benefit analysis. He loves with reckless abandon regardless of the outcome. Thirdly, Jesus' love gives unconditionally. It, It humbly serves. It risks betrayal. It gives unconditionally. At the end of the chapter, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, Peter makes a fairly brash statement and says, Lord, you know, even, if, even if everyone else denies you, I'll never deny you. I'll follow you. Don't worry. I've got your back through this. No matter what's happening, I've got it. And what does Jesus say? Before morning, you're going to have to deny me not once, not twice, but three times. And we find as we, as we continue reading in John's gospel, that's exactly what he does. He denies his Lord. And yet we see Jesus circle back to him in the very last chapter of John's gospel. And what does Jesus do? He comes up to John. John's been fishing. He comes up to him on the beach. And he pulls him aside. And he says, John, do you love me? He asks him three times. And I don't think he does it just to stick the knife in. Remember, Peter? (laughs) Remember? I told you three times. Do you really love me? Remember what you did to me? No. Because each time he asks him if he loves him, and Peter says, you know I love you, Lord. And Peter says, okay. Or Jesus says, okay, I've got a job for you. Feed my lambs. What Jesus is doing at the end of John's gospel is he's restoring Peter. What he's doing is loving him with a love that gives unconditionally. What he is doing is saying, Peter, my love for you is not based on your performance for me. It was never about that. It was never about whether you failed me or whether you served me the way that you should. And so in spite of your shortcomings and so in spite of your failures, I'm coming back to you because my love for you is unconditional. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. Because the gospel tells us that God loves us not because of our performance for him, but because in in spite of our performance for him. God loves us on the basis, not of our performance for him, but his performance for us. Jesus' love is unconditional. What do we do when we're abandoned and wronged? We cut that person out. They're dead to us. We write them off. They don't deserve our love anymore, but what does Jesus do? Jesus pursues them. He loves them faithfully and unconditionally in spite of their performance. That's a kind of love that you can't see anywhere else. I mean, Jesus is the example of love par excellence. It's it's an unconditional giving of oneself And if we're going to be his followers, that's the way we've got to do it. 
there aren't strings attached. Because we betray the gospel when we love conditionally. We betray the gospel that saved us. Fourthly, love, Jesus' love, Jesus' standard of love willingly dies. Okay, it humbly serves, it risks betrayal. It gives unconditionally and willingly dies. Verse 1 of this chapter says, He loved them to the end. Jesus was preparing to trade the fellowship of his disciples for the solitude of the cross. And 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16 says, This is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. See, it's not really optional. If we're going to follow Jesus the way he wants us to follow, then that's what we've got to do. And so we see Jesus here say, smashing our self-satisfaction and our complacency of showing love simply to those who love us back or who suit us or who can benefit us in some way. Jesus' words that he speaks to his disciples on this night are not the pithy one-liners of a sage or a guru. It's just spitting out wisdom on top of a mountain. Jesus embodied love in a way that no one ever has before and no one ever has since. That's a new commandment. The standard of love that we're called to is Jesus. Now, if we're loving each other like that, that's something that's going to gain attention, right? Because that's bizarre. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that people would love unconditionally. There's always there's a strings attached to everything in life. There's strings attached to the love that you have for your wife or your husband in your marriage. There are strings attached to everything. So if we were, if we were to start doing this, it's going to draw attention. And so it's no surprise, lastly, that Christian love preaches the gospel. Christian love preaches the gospel. Why do I say this? We can see the scope of Jesus' command to his disciples going from one another to all men, saying, love one another, and by this will all men know that you're my disciples. And I think Jesus has in mind something a a little bit more broad than merely what happens when we see a couple of guys with beards and suspenders and say, oh, those guys are Amish. God doesn't want people to look at us and just see the love and just say, oh, those people are are Christians. I think Jesus' intent goes beyond mere identification Jesus wants to see the way that we, Jesus wants us to love in such a way that the world that watches us understands that the message of the gospel is true. He wants us to love in such a way that people don't just merely identify us, but see that, that what we follow and believe and what we say has taken place in our hearts is real. He wants, he's got some plan so grand that he wants the way we love to show that he truly has been sent from the Father to do what he has claimed to do. That's the plan. 
And so when we love the way we're supposed to, we are preaching that gospel message. John chapter 17, a prayer, records a prayer that Jesus is going to pray later that night. And in it he says this, My prayer is not for them alone, speaking of his close-knit group of disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. And then he says this, May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That's what's going on here. Jesus wants the way we love to create the kind of unity that points to the truth of who he is and who has sent him. And so one person said this, the new command is therefore not only the obligation of the new covenant community to respond to the God who has loved them and redeemed them, it is a privilege which, rightly lived out, proclaims the true God before a watching world. In other words, there's apologetic intent in what Jesus is talking about here. Apologetics is the defense of the faith. And sometimes we can get so concerned with being able to prove the existence of God and, the, and creation and the reliability of Scripture and all sorts of apologetic items and I will say that all of those things are worthy endeavors. But we can, go, we can get so focused on trying to know things and prove things that we forget that there is, an un, there is an undeniable apologetic to the way that we live. Our very living and following in the steps of Jesus pre- preaches the gospel in a way that can't be denied by the people that see it. So John Wesley once said, an ounce of love is worth a pound of knowledge. And I think we would do well to heed those words because we can know a lot of stuff and yet be devoid of love. We must come to see that our love is a visible demonstration and confirmation of the truth of the gospel. And Schaefer, who I referred to before, was very concerned that Christians show each other what he referred to as observable love. He always used the word observable love because he found Christians talking all the time about the fact of love, but he didn't see it. So So what he was saying is, let's stop talking about it and let's actually start doing it. And one of the things that he said in that little, little uh, pamphlet that he wrote was this. We can make a little flag and write on it, we love all Christians. You can see us trudging along with our little flags all rolled up that say, we love all Christians. And at the appropriate moment, we take off all the rubber bands, unzip the cover, and put it up. How ugly Those are Schaefer's words, viewing Christians. A banner that we keep rolled up until the appropriate moment. Schaefer knew that love was never adequately expressed in words alone. Are we people who demonstrate to one another observable love? Or is it just theory? Is it a matter of convenience Is it something that we do to the people that we really like? 
Is it something that we show to the people that we get only to the people that we get along well with? If it is, it's not the kind of love that Jesus pushes on us. So I say here at the take-home truth at the bottom of your outline, if I could just sum this all up in one sentence, it would be this. We display the truth of the gospel when our lives are marked by Christ-like love. We display the truth of the gospel when our lives are marked by Christ-like love. And I'm just going to take a few more minutes to, to conclude with you. What do we need to do to love like this? I would suggest that whether you're here this morning and you don't, you've never come to Christ, either you're not sure what it means to be a Christian, or you just, you've never come to Christ and repented, or whether you've been saved for 30 or 40 or 50 years, the thing that we all need equally is the gospel. We all need the gospel. Because the bar that Jesus has set is impossibly high. I mean, have you ever loved like that? Can you love like that? Is it even possible? And see, what Jesus tells us is not just an ideal. This is something to shoot for. Jesus expects it. He demands it. And the problem is, we don't ever meet it. And so if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, okay, well, then being a Christian must be about trying to do this stuff better. These are, these are people that gather together and they hear messages preached and they just try to do that stuff better. Then I'm here to tell you that that is not what it means to be a Christian at all. Christians are people who realize that they have completely failed at their responsibilities. But that's what makes the gospel such good news. Because at every point where you have failed to love, Jesus was successful. Every time that you and I have turned a blind eye to need, every harsh word, every unkind thought, every week that has gone by where we've been so focused on ourselves that we can't even begin to think about the people around us, in every instance where we have failed, Jesus was completely successful. And what does he do? He offers to trade his track record of success with your track record of failure. And he offers to take the penalty that your failure brings about. Because all of us are rightly condemned. We have not loved the way we ought. And our condemnation is just. And so if you are here this morning, the answer is not to do better. The answer is to trust Jesus. Only in the gospel can you ever find hope. Any attempts at loving like this in our own strength are going to be completely futile. You can't do it. And I would say to those of us who are Christians that we need the gospel as well. Because if you're like me, you come to, might come to a passage of Scripture like this and just be completely filled with despair because you know how much you fail. And so I just want to remind you this morning, if you're feeling that despair, that the same grace that gained your standing before God is the grace that maintains your standing before God.
we can get caught up in that treadmill of thinking, okay, I came to the service and I, I just need to do better. And what I'm trying to tell you is that, yes, we need to work harder at love, but it needs to be motivated by the right things. And you will be more motivated and freed to go out and show one another the kind of love that God requires of you if you come to the realization first that your standing with God is secure. He's, you're, you're, you and I are like Peter. God's love for us and acceptance of us and his showering of grace on us was never about what we did. And it's still not what about, what, about what we do. Yet the gospel of grace is something that can take root in our heart and it's something that can change us. And it can start to bring about a new way of thinking and loving that we, and, and give us new abilities that we never had before. That's how the Bible talks about it. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3, and, 3 to 6 says this, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. Now, where does that love come from? Verse 5, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. You see, our goal here is not to move away from the gospel, but to trust it afresh and to go deeper into the gospel, deeper in our understanding of our acceptance and, and, and our, the fact that we've been accepted by Christ, that we've been loved by Christ, that we've been given all sorts of riches in Christ, that the only place that we can truly find joy is in Christ. As, as we consider those things, as we consider those truths, they are going to have an effect in us that's going to change us. Because a person that has had an encounter with Jesus and is truly recognizing what he's been given and the way he's been loved and the grace and mercy that he's received doesn't walk away unchanged. And it frees you. The gospel frees you to let go of the idols that prevent you from loving one another. It frees us to let go of our idols of pride we're able to let go of that critical spirit where we constantly see people and we're constantly judging them over and over and over again because we're proud. But the gospel tells me that my glory isn't in me, it's in Jesus. My glory is in the cross and it frees me from those idols. It frees me from the idol of human approval. I can speak the truth to you. I can say hard things to you and you can say hard things to me without fearing losing the friendship because my, the greatest priority in my life is not your approval. The gospel tells me that I'm already accepted in God. I don't need human approval. I have the approval, approval of the one who really matters. It will free you from the idol of self. Many times we're simply not aware of the needs around us. We're, we're just too focused on what we're doing. And the gospel tells us that there is joy to be found not in pursuing our own selfish interests, but in pursuing a savior. The gospel frees us from the idol of security. One of the reasons we don't love 
is because we understand that in any act of love, we're going to be required to give a part of ourselves away that we might not ever get back. And so we make an idol out of our security. The gospel tells us that we are secure in Christ. That there is nothing that we can lose in this world. There's nothing that can truly be taken from us. You see, you see what I mean? Growing in our understanding of the gospel that way is going to change the way we love. And if we do, we're going to start loving like Jesus. Let's pray.